Hey, listeners, do you fucking love music? Because we do. And if you fucking love music, please consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash on the record music, where for just $5 a month, you can have access to our private podcast where we go in depth on albums, do extended album reviews, do impromptu shows, do live shows, legacy albums, lots of great content on the Patreon, on the private podcast, because we want to share our love of music with the entire world. Look, it's really fucking easy these days to put out a video on YouTube and say, here's why this band sucks, or here are the worst songs out today, or or this song or this album is just crap. It's all clickbait. And that's not who we are. We love music. and We love sharing music. We love talking about music. We are musicians. We are music listeners. We go to concerts. We go to festivals. And that's what we want to spread to the world. And you can help us do that. If you believe these same things that I'm talking about right now, please consider joining us on Patreon. We know you have a choice with what to do with your money. And we hope for just $5 a month, you consider supporting us so we can continue to spread this message and continue our mission of just fucking rocking. So if you would, please go to patreon.com slash on the record music and join us. Now let's get fucking rocking. Hello, hello. You are listening to On The Record Music, a music podcast for those who just fucking love music. And if you just fucking love music, then you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review and include an album that you want Jesse and I to talk about on the episode. You don't have to listen on Apple Podcasts to head over and leave us a review. We just want you to leave us a review there because that's right now where reviews matter the most. So head over there, leave us an honest review Include an album that you want us to review, and then once we hit 10 new reviews, we will draw them out of a hat and pick one and do it on our show. In today's episode, we're talking live albums. I love listening to live albums personally. Jesse and I are going to talk a little bit more about that, and then we're each going to give a top three or just three live albums that we personally love and run through those and talk a little bit more about them. In today's episode, we also talk a lot about Bonnaroo, but as I'm recording this now, we just found out that Bonnaroo is postponed completely for 2020, will not be happening this year. I'm shedding a tear, but just keep that in mind as we talk about this. And then also, you can find us on social media, On The Record Music, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to chat with you there. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Had a threesome the other night. Did you? A couple of no-shows, but... I had yeah. a good time. Yeah. Well, you know, you, when you do it left and right, you know, yeah, it really does count. Right. <laughs> Especially doing it left and right. How about this left-handed guitar being uh, sold over the uh, auction? Oh, fuck. Dude, that's... I can't believe, like, six million bucks. Yeah. So, Ooh. so people uh, that are listening now, as we are on the record, a music podcast served by Ben and Jesse here. Uh, we're us. talking. We're talking music right before we hit record here and uh one of the headlines that you know you usually get suckered punched into on the lo- online uh said uh the online you know Kurt Cobain's guitar from Unplugged um from 1993's uh, MTV Unplugged with Nirvana uh, had outsold um these the previous record uh, which was uh, David Gilmer's Black Strat that sold for 3.8 million and as Ben and I found out uh just right before we hit record, Kirk Cobain's modified Martin 1959 D18E acoustic guitar that he played during the 93 um, plug show, that sold for $6 million. $6 million and 10000 <laughs> Fuck. 
It's a lot of money, dude. Dude, I, you know... Even if I had lots and lots of money. Like, say you win the lottery, the Powerball, when it's like near a billion dollars. So it's like 900 million. You take the cash, you split that in half, you get taxed at that. You still get like $300 million cash. Yeah. Like, you know, and then you you do the smart things of like planning for the future and, you know, squaring everything away. And then you still have like $299 million left. So what do you spend that on? I don't even know if I'd still like go out and buy a guitar like that for $6 million. I don't know <laughs> that I would like as much as I love that stuff and love Kurt Cobain's guitar and the, it's iconic and like David Gilmore's that sold for 3.8 or whatever a few years ago. Like, I don't know that I would want that. Yeah, I know. It's like, just kind what of, what would you do? Like, I want to have a guitar to play. I don't want like I, there's no way you could play that guitar. No, I, I wouldn't want to. I mean, it, I would just to hear it, but it's oh, like, for it's, sure. it's, it's, it, I totally still, would. Even you and I, um, you know, amateurist guitarists that, you know, could play pretty decent. We're still not going to make it sound like David Gilmore. You know, I just, I'm just going to be out there. Just going to be honest. Right. It's going to sound like any other Fender. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, and it's like, ooh, it's like 3.8 million. But now, so do you want to know what the estimated, the original estimated price for this was? For, for Gilmore or Cobain, Cobain's for guitar? Cobain's guitar. Um, a couple million? No, one million exactly was kind of what they huh. estimated it at, you know? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, and who's buying it? Is it like a person or is it like a conglomerate of so, like people or like a company that you know kind of buys this stuff? So apparently, uh, the the top bid came from Australian uh, businessman Peter Friedman, uh, owner of Rode R O D E microphones. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have a my mic stand is a Rode. Yeah, and actually, I'm the next microphone I get is. I'm looking at a Rode microphone. So, okay, so it's a music guy at least. Like, you know, he's not just some dude collecting it. Yeah, it's not like somebody that's just going to like go, hey, look what I got, you know, next to my other five guitars, you know. Damn. Can you imagine that, though? A $1 million estimated guitar goes for six six times that. I can't. You know, for stuff like this, though, I would rather it go to someone who wants it than like some company or corporation or collection group trying to buy it so they can resell it later Mm -hmm. you know like i want someone to have it like yeah of course you're probably buying it with the intent of like sure maybe down the line i could sell it for even more but i would want someone to want to have it like yeah i'm a huge nirvana fan huge cobain fan like i have the money i want this guitar yeah it's it's one of those things where it belongs yeah it definitely belongs in somebody else's um collection if they're truly all about it you know right and kind of speaking of that you sent me an article earlier this week that we want to discuss on our week in music segment oh yeah about so, yeah kind of like how, live nation yeah like uh you know it's funny because uh speaking of Kirk Cobain there was an old article and I don't recall its full contents but um it was written by um Courtney Love, Kurt Cobain's ex-wife, um, where she talks about how the music industry fucks over artists and shit like that. And so yep. the article that I sent you over was about Live Nation, this beautiful, what we think is beautiful, um, you know, just great music promote art artist uh, promotion company that really kind of helps get you know musicians and caters to musicians. And 
you know, the, the headline, you know, um, 20% pay cut plan for artists in 2021 when this shit gets kicked back. And it's like, whoa, Live Nation, that's you? Right. So in a quick summary, I'll read a clip of the article. Most of the new policies shift financial burdens to artists. For example, the company wants to decrease the monetary guarantees promised to artists before an event by 20% across the board. Live Nation also says that if a concert is canceled due to poor ticket sales, it will give artists 25% of the guarantee as opposed to the 100% that promoters are currently expected to pay. Moreover, if an artist cancels a performance in breach of the agreement, the artist will pay the promoter two times the artist fee, a type of penalty that, as Billboard notes, is unheard of in the live music industry. So in a way, they're like, yeah, we can cancel and not pay you, but if you cancel, you're going to have to pay us double. Mm -hmm. You you, you always notice that when you go to a doctor's office, they can cancel at any time, but like you got to have at least 24 hours. If you you don't have 24, you know, within 24 hours, you got to pay. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like, I'm going to take the doctor's fee here, but yet the doctor can cancel at any time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So... (laughs) From from a purely like business standpoint, I get this. Like I it, I understand it, but that's not the problem that I have. Because the problem I have is more with Live Nation as a whole. Mm-hmm. And Live Nation exists as a company to make money. They don't exist to help artists or help music venues. They exist. They inserted themselves as a middleman under the guise of solving a problem. But the problem with the company like Live Nation is they're trying to win a game that you can't win. And they're trying to do that by monopolizing the venue and talent industry because what they do, and for those of you who don't know what Live Nation is, it's a concert promoter essentially, and they partner with artists and they partner with venues. And in some cases they own the venues and are basically mm-hmm. like, okay, here, you know, if you work with us, we can, you can play at all these places. But that severely limits because sometimes if a con if a venue is under a live nation contract you can't play at that venue unless you're with live nation as an artist so it just squashes everything down it takes away the freedom of the artists it takes away the freedom of the venues and they profit off of all of that so it takes away money from independent musicians it takes away money from independent venues and it puts it in their pockets and live nation is now a conglomerate with ticketmaster and Ooh. you know how I feel about fucking Ticketmaster. Yeah, I we're, fucking we're in the same hate boat. Ticketmaster with a goddamn passion because now that they own the ticketing sale aspect and a lot of the venue aspect, it makes it nearly impossible to gain ground as an artist. And then they work with record labels and it's just a whole big fucking thing. And these people are making the music industry worse without question you know, they'll tell you they're doing all these great things. Oh, we make create opportunities, but it's all fucking bullshit mm-hmm. because if they didn't exist, something better would exist in their place. You know, something worse could theoretically exist in their place, too. But it's these companies that, again, they're trying to win a game that doesn't have an end. They're doing that by trying to get the most money, get the most artists, get the most venues. But at what? What's the end game there? Like, who does that help? Nobody but Live Nation and their shareholders. It's like a black hole. It just keeps sucking in, you know, more and more and just gets large and expands larger and it keeps sucking more in that comes across its plate. It's kind of, 
it's kind of a horrible thing. I didn't realize that they teamed up with uh, Ticketmaster that hard, though. That's crazy because yeah. yeah, you and I both hate buying tickets online. I fucking hate it. Oh, the fees. Yeah. I mean, like we've I think we've mentioned once before where it's like, yeah, this this should be a, a whole topic almost like an episode for us to talk about this. But right, it is egregious. So yeah, I think almost every Live Nation show I try to avoid because they are extremely high priced you know like yeah jack uh i was gonna say jack Lat, jack white or in the raconteurs or something like that were coming in town mm-hmm. like they played at um, the armory which i think is a major heavy one is it not uh, for live nation it like might they, be they yeah, have some live they have some yeah. in there yeah so it's like you know these people have the same mentality that i've always seen with Ticketmaster. so it's like i've always tried to avoid going through them but you know sometimes you have to see the artists that you want to see and you have to go through them um but definitely, I've never been that huge a fan. I think isn't uh, even Amsterdam Bar kind of like a, a promoter of Live Nation? I mean, there's quite a few around in the Twin Cities here that you just know that they're just going to be hit heavy with Live Nation. I, if do, you, yeah, if you've seen a concert, you've almost certainly been to a Live Nation concert. Yeah. Their, their reach is that far and wide, but they do a good enough job of kind of hanging back. And they're, it's like a lot of, it's a, a lot of industry is like that. It's like, when you go to the liquor store to buy some beer, you think you have a lot of choice. And like to some extent you do with the independent craft scene, especially in Minneapolis and here in Chicago, it's pretty good too. But you know, so you have some options, but if you're looking at the national brands from mm-hmm. Budweiser to Miller to Heineken to you, you name that national brand, those are all owned by like one of three companies. So you think you have choice, but really it's all going to the same place in the end. And that's what like live nation is. And I hate to say this. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but live nation owns Bonnaroo. They purchased Bonnaroo in 2015 or 16. And you know, so it's more of the same and they own a lot of festivals. So there's live nation, AEG, AEG is not mm-hmm. quite as big live nation, but kind of similar. So it's kind of the two big players, but between those two, they own now like all the festivals. And that's why, a lot of the festivals have also become the same. So if you look at the lineup of Coachella, Lollapalooza, Governor's Ball, Firefly, Bonnaroo, you name the festival, they're all kind of the same because they're all the fucking same promoter who's just pushing the same artist because they have these contracts. And so like, that's why you don't get as much of that independent scene anymore at the big festivals. And now I'm just seeing that. um, So when it originally happened, um, Live Nation had, purchased a controlling interest in 2015 of Bonnaroo and they were letting the company that originally started and owned Bonnaroo Superfly to kind of run the festival and do the thing. But now Mm. it looks like Live Nation is purchasing the controlling or whatever was Exclusive rights to Yeah. So now basically they're going to have the whole festival. So who knows what that means, you know? So it's done some good because they pumped in some more cash to the festival. So they've upgraded some of the facilities and the bathrooms are nicer. But now, now that they own everything, like it's now they have a monopoly on it so they can do whatever they want. So you might not be seeing Pearl Jam at the what stage. You might be seeing Pearl Jam at the what stage presented by Miller Lite. You know, like mm-hmm. it's just going to become everything sponsored. You know, I'm probably being a little alarmist here, but. I just no, think no, I mean, uh, in, it, it, in the long run, it's <clears throat> it's not good for music and yeah. people who enjoy music. No, what you're doing is, yeah, I mean, you're taking a look at what history has actually 
you know, rolled over before and how we've seen it just in other industries, but also within the music industry itself of, you know, these small labels back in the 60s used to have like hundreds of them. All of a sudden CBS and Atlantic come in and then Motown comes in and they kind of chop these motherfuckers up and bring them on in. It's just like that black hole theory of just things that just, oh, we're getting bigger and we're more powerful. So we're going to suck you in. And Mm -hmm. it's really sucky that, you know, you know, if you're going to buy like something that's been working for, I mean, how long has Bonnaroo been around? Almost 20 years? Almost. Yeah. So 15 it's like years. We've been, we've been working really well with this. Why would you change it up anyway? You know, it's like, right. okay, maybe you can expand it and go, okay, we're going to have another stage here, another stage here for us, but you guys keep doing what you're doing, but we'll just add a little bit here. It's right. like, you should keep the train rolling as it is. You should try to keep it as organic. You know, you don't you don't want to turn Ben and Jesse's restaurant into TGI Fridays because nobody's going to come to that fucking thing anymore. You know, right. they, they wanted the the really good chicken wings and the, you know, the fucking vegan tacos, whatever the fuck we got. They don't want that, like, you know, spinach dip and, you know, jalapeno poppers that come out of a, you know, frozen bag. You know, mm-hmm. they want real food. Same thing with that. They want a real experience going to Bonnaroo or going to any festival that is truly organic to the area, especially the area. You know, that's the one thing that you come in with these corporatist kind of uh, takeovers is that you lose the actual community around you. You lose what was actually important that actually gave it its foundation. Right. Because you come in and when your motivation is profit and that's what they're Mm -hmm. buying these festivals for to generate profit, it becomes how can I squeeze the most money out of this thing? Rather than how can I further the spirit of Bonnaroo and what it was, is supposed to be. And I understand things change, you know, that's totally cool because, you know, music has changed over 30 years, over 50 years, and it'll change in 10, 20 years from now. But you just, it runs into this point where you can tell, like, they're just trying to ring in as much money as they can, cutting costs where they can, you know, jacking up prices where they can, and to, create return for their shareholders but Mm -hmm. in the long run it does nothing for music it does nothing for people who like music and it's just you know Bonnaroo could fade into the abyss with all the other festivals and eventually die Um, a quick little so I saw this snippet too of so when they took over in 2015 um, who blamed the media conglomerate for a series of lackluster lineups that seemingly cater to a younger demographic um, they changed some stuff while the traditional Sunday classic rock or jam clo- closer was abandoned in favor of acts like The Weeknd, the lineup alterations didn't necessarily have a positive effect on the festival as Bonnaroo drew an all-time low attendance of 45,000 in 2016 and the following two years each drew around 65,000. And this is a festival that can handle about 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like people could tell because the lineups changed Quite a bit. Uh, they sold out the next year, but that's the year they had Fish headlining, Childish Gambino, Post Malone, the Avit Brothers, the National Casey. Like, so they had mm. a lot of different variety again, you know. So, like, I don't have a problem ultimately if they're gonna own this festival, but you know, they need to make it about the music and about the experience and not about the cash generation. Yeah, the corporatism of it. You know, it's yeah. like, hey, let we, hey, there's a whole tent of Budweiser here. Let's get some girls with really big tits just to kind of entice most of the people over here just to really drink this really shitty beer. You know, right. I have, you know, I can drink Budweiser. I have no problem with this. But it's like, the right. reality is it's just this corporatism of like, hey, look at us. We can make more money off of you just by 
you know, mm-hmm. shoving out just a little bit of money just to get more from you. And it's just kind of like, well, how about we just keep things local? How about we just keep things that are native to like why this festival grew to 60 some thousand to a hundred some thousand right that happened naturally at first you know Mm -hmm. and there's a reason for it well because it was organic right and i can't claim to be a bonnaroo purist because i didn't my first one was 2014 Mm -hmm. and by that point it had changed significantly from when it first started in like 2005 or so and that was like strictly jam bands it was a free-for-all you pull up your car and just hike in and camp set up camp wherever and now it's very organized even when my first year is very organized like you drive in they tell you where to go they set you up in a nice area so and like the lineup was a little more diverse i think my first year it was jack white elton john and like lionel richie or something like that was like the headliners i think there was one more but i can't i can't think of who the other person was but um, you know, so it was obviously even different. So I'm sure a purist of 2005 would have laughed at me going 2014 is like a good year. But even since 2014, that's when ownership changed. That's when the focus became on let's try to make this appealing. So they try to make it more appealing to younger people. I would mm-hmm. assume te- late teenagers, early 20s. You know, when I went to my first Bonnaroo, I was 23 years old. Now I'm 29 and like I'm sure now they think they're trying to gear towards those 20 early 20s people still. And it it clearly didn't work when they tried to do all this lineup change stuff because people don't come there like it, most of these people you can see anywhere. Yeah. And that's not, you know, so they're they don't know what they're doing, essentially. You know, they know how to make money. But yeah. I don't yeah, that's about it. That's the only push yeah. that they can do. Uh, one thing you did bring up there, are you, uh, you know, like I can probably say I would probably be the only festival in this world that I could be, you know, like from the organic ground would be the uh, Duluth uh, Blues Fest that happens mm-hmm. every August. It's like mm-hmm. I pretty much grew up there where every year we were down there, my parents and I, and or if we weren't down there, we would be up at our place in downtown Duluth where my mom lives and you could hear everything from down there do you think you have a festival that you've been to other than Bonnaroo uh, like the most times where you think you might have been there like organically whether it's you know like what's the one we went to in Shakopee we went to Festival of of Palomino yeah Festival of Palomino there's been three oh no there's only been two hasn't there I don't know I guess yeah I I only went to the first couple I guess yeah I don't know that I've ever been a part of kind of like the beginnings of one but that would be one a sound set that had been going on yeah. for several years before when I went to my first one. That's a hip hop festival that also takes place in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, from my understanding, one of the bigger hip hop festivals in just the world because it's purely hip hop, and they uh, they have lots of great names that go there. Um, I've been to that one, I think, just once. I don't know that there's any other festivals though that I've can say like I'm kind of in on the ground floor for. Mm-hmm. Festivals are tough because. Yeah. Like even Bonnaroo, like they somehow built it so their first festival was like a hundred thousand people. Yeah. So they they didn't start off with like two thousand people one weekend, but I don't know. If festivals are interesting. Yeah, That's definitely. For sure. You know, once they are, you know, three days or more it's just kinda like, Holy cow, you know you're invested, you know. And that's kinda like what the blue f- the excuse me. Uh, the Bayfront Blues Fest in Duluth is like, you know, it's like, oh, three days, you know, you're getting, well, I think it's four days. So it's four days, and it's like, you know, from Thursday to Sunday, you're just partying out in that 
camper, you know, or you're just oh, yeah. partying out in the parking lot. So, yeah. it, you know, you do want to make them, if you do want to be in from like the ground level, you kind of just want to make sure you are committed like that. Cause I don't know. I, I feel like it makes it more fun that way, you know, rather than just kind of, yep. like, I mean, you can just par- participate every once in a while, but if you want to really kind of get involved with it, I really like getting involved with it all four days. It's like camping. You just want to go out and camp and you just don't want to do mm-hmm. one night, eh, one night camping. It's not fun. Boom. You just go at it all the time. Right. And that's what I love about like a Bonnaroo. Like you have no choice. I mean, you could technically get a day pass and drive down from Nashville, but it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's like an hour south of Nashville. It's almost exclusively camping. Like everyone who's there is camping for four days. It's just a wild party, but a lot of fun. The community is great. The culture is great. It's the most like accepting, freeing community you could ever probably be a part of. Everyone's free to be themselves. Everyone's there to have a good time. Everyone you meet is super friendly and just fun to be around. And it's it's awesome. I, that's why I can continue to sing the praises of it because mm-hmm. the culture still exists, you know, but I'm but my worry is that the culture would change over time because I've heard that Coachella does not have the same kind of culture from someone. I haven't been to Coachella, but I know a few people who have been to both Bonnaroo and Coachella and they've said Bonnaroo is far and away better for the culture and the community. Mm-hmm. Um, Coachella is more like everyone's kind of there for themselves. I mean, I'm sh- the music lineups are still great because I've seen those and like, damn, I'd love to be there. But it's more of like a you go there to be seen. It's not as communal. People, you know, c- the camping is small. People usually stay in hotels or whatever and come in, uh-huh. and then you leave and party. And so it's just not quite the same. So like that's what I love about Bonnaroo, and I just, I just hope that doesn't change. Yeah, because you know, we definitely need to keep that. Yeah, and I want to continue to go there as long as. I can as long as I feel like it because there's no people think that festivals are a young person's game and there are a lot of young people there like don't get me wrong but there are people there of all ages like you'll Mm -hmm. you'll meet people in their 50s and 60s who are at these things like there's no age limit and like as long as you're there and open and having fun nobody cares how old you are the only person who does is you yeah exactly you know so you know I hope to still if Bonnaroo is still around and still kicking you know, I hope to still be going. I might not be going every year in 20 years when I'm in my 40s or 50s, but, you know, I wouldn't mind going every few years. No, yeah, exactly. And, you know, this will be my first one this year, hopefully, in September. Um, yeah, hopefully. Uh, you know, I'm 35. That'll be, be close to 36 at that time. So it's like, you know, I'm going, you know, I'm ready to party. It's like, well, I'll show these, like, 20-year-olds, like, what, how to do it. We're having a good fucking time. This is how we do things downtown, as, <laughs> as they say in Ghostbusters. <laughs> you know, but it's like one of those things where I agree with you. I've when I've gone to these festivals and stuff like that, you see people of all ages and they're all having fun, and it's like very, very inclusive. And regardless of who is being marketed by these, you know, uh, conglomerate, uh, you know, uh, corporate people, it's like mm-hmm. people still go there for that actual camaraderie, that actual community yep. that's based around sheer music in the yep. long end. But yep. also just kind of just saying, hey, how you doing? You know, hey, let's party. Hey, here's a little uh, pill. It's like, uh, that's, that's not aspirin, you know. But and, Yeah, right. It, and you kind of just like, you kind of go about your day and you just kind of enjoy it and just go carefree. But it's like, I agree with you, like normal uh Social standards can still kind of show up there, but I do believe that a lot of these festivals get that really true communal feel. And for sure, it's meant to be more open and welcoming. And it's really yep. all about the live music. Yeah. Live music. Speaking of live music, that's what we're here to talk about today, some 25 minutes later. Yeah. I know. 
26 minutes in. Eh, that's not bad. <laughs> we're talking we're talking live albums on our episode on our podcast today. We're going to just kind of talk about live music in general, uh, what we like about live albums, and then we're going to run through a few live albums each, kind of count down three albums that we thought were noteworthy to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And for for me, I know that we've discussed before on the podcast, but usually when we talk uh, just personally, I know that I'm you're more of a live music uh, album person than yep. I am. But yep. um, we both know that uh, there is some great beauty captured on a live album, uh, usually. And so for me, I think what I like about live albums... Um, just taking out the recorded versions out. But when you listen to a live album, you kind of can catch that magic of sometimes where they may or may not mess up, but the audience, you know, is still with them. You can kind of hear that, you know, for me, mm-hmm. there's a couple of these albums that, that I chose on my list that you just know the overall feel of the audience is with the artist usually captured. And when they record these things, it's occasionally like one or two nights and then they'll, they'll do a mix of the both or just like one night or something like that. So Mm -hmm. it's really cool that they are trying to capture the best flow of the show and kind of keep it going. Um, and I do really like having the crowd aspect, um, you know, their reactions and shit like that. I really like that because one of my albums um, that Mm -hmm. I'm going to mention, they have a lot of crowd like going, oh my God, beautiful, you know, kind of thing like that where it's like, "Mm," you know, it's, it's really nice to hear them get involved with it. And it's just one of those things where, okay, when I'm listening at home, especially if I have a little bit of smoke or something with me, it's like, oh, I can be, I, I can imagine myself in that crowd, and that's what I think a really good live album does for me, at least. And I think these three that I have, and I actually have a couple uh, honorable mentions um, on top of that, but I think all five of those that I've chosen are extremely ones that I'm like, I can put myself into the crowd, and I can hear it and feel it at the same time. Yeah, I don't know exactly how I got turned on to live albums, but I know. I like them because I've always felt like I can get a real sense of a band or an artist by hearing their live stuff. And it's not always the first thing I go to, but I love listening to live albums, especially for guitar driven bands. So someone that is a guitar soloist, because a lot of guitar players scale back on the album. They don't let their whole talent show, which is totally fine because you can't be ripping and rolling on every song, on every album. Like, it's just going to all sound the same eventually. Mm -hmm. But I like live albums because it gives the guitar player a chance to show off a little bit. And that's usually what you get when you see them live, is the guitar player might take a few more measures to hammer out a solo. And when that gets captured on a live album, I love to hear that. But you can hear the energy of the whole band, the drums, the bass, the singer. You can hear how much they care, the passion. And there's always an energy that you get from a live audience that you don't get in a studio. And I love hearing that and feeling that as I listen. And I like to listen and I kind of picture myself on stage when I listen to the live albums and kind of put myself up there playing these songs and then getting that feedback from the audience. You can kind of create and generate that energy from it. It's kind of cool. And and that's what I love about live music. Plus, I think it really just captures the time because sometimes whatever year it's a live album is recorded in, it just captures that time to me a little bit better than what the studio does because sometimes these performances take place 
around a certain cultural movement or a cultural event or just a year that had a lot going on. And you can kind of pick up some of that energy if you think to look for it. And so it's just kind of cool. You get a lot that you don't get from a studio album. That's what I've always loved about live albums. Yeah, no, you bring up a good point because uh, I think the main thing that I really enjoyed about my three, my well, I'd say probably my top four is the fact that they are unique performances to the artists and you really kind of see these artists that I chose kind of at their 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 prime. I don't want to say like prime like this is them them getting like 50 gold records. I I I the the three that made my list captured a moment, I think. And in a time in history where the audience was so in awe that you, when you listen to it, you are so enamored in it. And I think that's the reason why I picked my top three um, for sure is just because it is a moment in time where I think when I look back at their histories, you know, you, you kind of don't recognize them for the, you know, that performance, you know, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where, where I was going, where I'm like, you know what, these ones out of probably I think I own maybe 10 live albums. I think these three have always been ones that I always continue to go to because I feel like there's something in time with those performances. For sure. What is your first live album? Because I, I was just thinking that when you're talking, do you know what your very first live album you got into is? Um, damn, that's a good question. Um, I think one of them is on my list the reason that I got into live albums but I'm trying to think like I remember even as a kid like listening to some live stuff like I remember listening to Kiss Alive when I was a kid Mm -hmm. I remember listening to I think I had some some Queen like my dad gave me some Queen stuff and that had some live stuff on it Um, but I remember like as I started first like building up my vinyl collection because I didn't really start doing that till probably six or seven years ago so like and I don't I don't buy a lot of vinyl like it's a pretty modest collection but I remember like some of the first ones I got from there I got like George Thorogood live um Peter Frampton comes alive so I those were probably some of the first like records that I bought you know I think like Frampton comes alive is a classic and I'll talk about that one um in a bit but you know so I think that's just kind of where I just eventually started listening to live music and heard like oh, I really like that I can hear this awesome guitar solo from this song that I know, but it's not like that on the record. And I think mm-hmm. that's just kind of how I got into it. Yeah, you know, I, I like I said, I, I would say Peter Frampton Comes Alive is the one that kind of sticks in my memory of being like the very first one that I kind of listened to and actually appreciating yeah. of, of live music because it, it didn't sound like it was live to me at the time because I probably was too young to kind of mm-hmm. con- conceptualize the difference between recorded work and what goes into that compared to a live show work and what goes into that. And how it's like, oh, right. only one take and you're going to sing, you know, baby, I'll come your way, you know. It's like, well, right. sweet. But if I had to say anything, I would definitely say... Um, one of the first ones that I bought, because I don't have Peter Frampton in my collection, I'd say one of the first ones that I bought was Loggins and Messina Live, and it was in their, I think it was in between their first and second one, and that one 
they play pretty damn near to exactly how the record is. And it just sounds so good and sounds clean. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like some, in, you know, in-between talk and stuff like that. And Jim, is, uh, I think uh, Kenny Loggins is going, hey, baby, hey, baby, as Jim Machine is walking across the stage and he's like getting on stage ready uh-huh. to play with them and stuff. So it's like kind of fun stuff like that. But other than that, they were like so like in sync on that concert, them and the band. It was just so wonderful. It's like, damn, yeah. you know, uh, it's just one of the better ones too. I, I didn't throw in my honorable mentions, but um, definitely, I think that's one of the first ones I recall owning for a live album. Mm-hmm. Well, should we get to a couple? Should we do honorable mentions first? Uh, kind of get those out of the way, or should we do uh, our kind of three sure. favorite ones? All right, huh. so I'll start whatever, off. Whatever dealer's choice. I'll tell you what. I'll start off with some honorable mentions. Okay. Um, the first one I'll kind of mention because we just talked about it with uh, Kirk Cobain's guitar. I think one of the better ones, um, and it's probably one of the ones that I, you know, just from being a 90s kid, 80s and 90s child, um, this one is definitely one of the mega ones that you you should always go to. I think it's it's worth playing. But Nirvana Unplugged, MTV's Unplugged, um, recorded in 1993, November 18th. Um, they had been doing this uh conception of uh mtv unplugged um when it used to be a music uh when it used to be a music station um they yeah, used to do these when it was series. about the music i know exactly rather than uh jersey shore and uh fucking guido nipples <laughs> GTL, and shit like that. and schnooky what was the what was the south park schnooky schnooky or whatever it was she just keeps eating people or something oh yeah <laughs> when they all become when they're all from they New all Jersey like, and it spreads. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was whole hilarious. That's <laughs> oh, good shit. Uh, so MTV used to do those Unplugged series, so just all acoustic show, basically. And so what they used to do, like Paul McCartney or Paul Simon and stuff would come in and, and play their original music. Well, Nirvana kind of broke the tradition of that. Uh, so that's what kind of makes it a, a little bit extra special in here is that they broke tradition of playing all originals. And what they did is they played quite a few... Um, covers um you know chris and kirk uh chris and kurt kirkwood very tough to say after you've had a couple drinks uh, they joined nirvana on stage and they were from the meat puppets and so they played like i think one or two tracks if, uh, if i remember right uh from the meat puppets uh, on that stage so they joined on stage there but um just kind of a couple you know tracks that everybody knows all apologies is probably one of the best songs off of there it's such a beautifully sung song by Kurt Cobain who you know usually has yeah. that raucous yeah. you know um, grunge vocals which is awesome but he does he sings that so eloquently uh, The Man Who Sold the World I mean a great cover of David Bowie on there and one of my favorites uh, this song has been a favorite of mine for many many years uh, before I realized that they had covered it on here and that's Where Did You Sleep Last Night a Lead Belly song um, I know it as a black girl when uh, Long John Baldry did it on his 1971 album um, really this whole collection of songs in here is very very good the Come As You Are is on there Polly uh, I, I, Polly's one of my favorite songs off and never mind but I mean two of the great covers right off of there um, all around, uh, one of my favorites uh, to throw in here, just to make my top three where I'm thinking, ah, oh, you know, be a great, great focus. But definitely one, I think, if you've never listened to it live, definitely go for it. Uh, so one of the next ones I was going to do um, is actually on your list. So I went to a different one. Uh, so I'll skip over my other one. And we'll go to probably one that would have made my top three if I didn't like my other top three. Um, but Neil Young, live at Massey Hall. This was released in 2007. It was never released before then. 
Um, this was re- actually recorded back in January 19th of 1971. For me, this is actually my favorite uh, period of Neil Young during his time. Uh, this is right after after the gold rush and right before harvest. Um, basically, every live version on there is absolutely absolutely fucking mm. killer, and he stays true mm-hmm. to the songs. You know, he doesn't try to go over it. Um, one of my favorites, um, not so he recorded this with Crosby, Stills, or no, excuse me, not Crosby, Stills, um, Buffalo Springfield, right before they broke up um, on their third album. Um, it's called "On the Way Home." Oh, I forgot. The, well, what, what, no, never mind. It's called On the Way Home. Definitely look it up at uh, On the Way Home live at Massey Hall. Wonderful, beautiful song. I did not like it when it was done by Buffalo Springfield, but this version is absolutely wonderful. Listen to it. It's one of the best power, uh, one of the best songs, and it starts off the whole fucking concert, and you listen to Neil Young just so bare. It sounds so young, so youthful, um, kind of hopeful a little bit in it. It just sounds wonderful, and... One of the better other key highlights on this is he, um, three songs later or two songs later, um, he introduces a song that he goes, I don't know if you'll like it or something like that, and he kind of like downplays it, and it's a six-minute and like 30-second version of Old Man. It's his first time performing it live. Old Man, look at me now. Woo! So check out Live at Massey Hall by Neil Young. It's a fantastic one. And so that does it for my honorable mentions. Ben, what do you got on your list? I, I, I know one of your main lists, but what was your honorable mentions? This yeah, time? so going through my honorable mentions, I'm just going to run through them here. First one on the honorable mentions list is R40. That's Rush Live 2015. This is Rush's final tour as a band. It was kind of announced that it was their final tour, but... It was kind of a never say never thing, but at the time, no one knew. Well, I mean, Neil Peart was suffering from arthritis as it was, you know, because he was like 70 years old or close to, you know, the the way he plays the drums. I mean, to be playing like he was at his age is insane. And of course, we know that he passed away uh, just this winter. Yeah, I think uh, November. Yeah, which was a real bummer. That one kind of stung a little bit. Um, I actually saw them on this tour. Uh, their recording I think is from specifically, I think it was like two nights in Toronto or something. Um, but I saw them during this whole tour. Uh, but this live album is fantastic. If you like rush at all, even if you don't check it out, totally worth the listen. Cause you can just really hear how good these guys are and how, amazing there as a band and to continue to play at such a high level for so long i mean 40 years r40 that was their 40th anniversary of neil joining the band because neil was the last to join the band there was alex and getty and then there was another drummer that they ended up kicking out and you know probably for the best because (laughs) had neil peart not come into the band i don't i don't think that rush i don't think we'd be talking about rush the same way we do today (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like Ringo and Pete Best, you know. Hey, it it's works. a lot it works like out. that. Yeah, yeah, it worked <laughs> out for the best. Um, another one off that list we've already talked about, but that's Frampton Comes Alive yeah. from Peter Frampton in 1976. This was for sure one of my first exposures to live albums, um, especially the song "Do You Feel." That was just one I remember oh, yeah. hearing as a kid. I loved that one with the talk box and everything. Dude, he's making his guitar talk. The Simpsons reference that one quite a bit. So that was kind of my first exposure there. 
Um, this one, the next one is kind of a few. Um, Bob Dylan's got a lot of live stuff out there from the basement tapes, which are awesome. There's a whole bootleg series of tons of different material. And then, of course, there's Royal Albert Hall in 1966. And this was just after Bob Dylan went electric. And to the behest of so many people who hated it. Mm-hmm. And he was playing this show. So for those of you who don't know the story, he's playing at Royal Albert Hall in England in 1966. And he would play his set. So he'd come out and he'd do his acoustic folk Bob Dylan stuff for the first half. Then go off stage for a little bit and come back with a full band. And then towards the end of the show, um, so someone at some point had yelled out, Judas! And because there were people were this angry at this guy, they thought they he was betraying folk music, betraying what he was about, which is funny because like you think about it and it's like, of course not. Like he went on to do some amazing stuff. But like at the moment, you probably would. I don't like I don't know that I wouldn't be mad either about him selling out if that's like you, you invest in him because he sang such personal songs. And I don't know either way, but it gets to the end. And they're about to play like a Rolling Stone. And he turns to the band and he says, play it fucking loud. And I don't know if you can hear it on this track, but there's video footage of it. And you can just (laughs) play it fucking loud. And the band just kicks in and they play this thing so fucking loud because people are so pissed. And he's like, fuck you. I'm just going to play this thing as loud as I want. Oh, that's a classic. Classic album. Classic live album. (sighs) Worth the listen. And then a last honorable mention is anything by the Grateful Dead. They also have so much live material. Oh, yeah. Way above and beyond all of their studio stuff. Some notable ones that I like are Red Rocks from 1978, uh, Closing of Winterland, which was December... Excuse me, it's the whiskey. December 31st, 1978 also, but you can't go wrong with any live Grateful Dead stuff. There's too much out there to listen to. I haven't even scratched the surface, but it's good. No, no, good, great, good great selection, great run there. I, I'm surprised R40 didn't make the top of the list just because you were there and you're like, ah, it was, I was it there, was, but I wasn't there. It was damn close. But how I pick these <laughs> is like with our other ones, I sit down and like whatever comes to the top of my mind is what I go with because I think there's like some reason, there's a reason it came to my mind first, and R40 came to my mind fourth, so it was right up there. <laughs> Wow, nice. But the other three that I'm going to talk about came to my head right away. Frampton yeah. Comes Alive was also very close. Yeah, you know, that, like Frampton definitely definitely showed up on my my idea. But I, it was kind of like, ah, that's a little bit too obvious. But I'm also like, well, oh, I really haven't listened to it in a long time. Like, it is one of those staples that made me realize what live music could sound like and how you can definitely bring it out. So... Um, but it's like one of those things where it's like, nah, I'm not really married to it, to be honest with you. Well, speaking of our top three here, Ben, maybe we should start get going on it, don't you think? This is your mid-show reminder to head over to Apple Podcasts after this episode and leave us a review and include an album you want us to review. When we hit 10 new reviews with those albums, we'll pick one out of a hat and do it on this show. You don't have to listen on Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. All right, back to it. What do you got? So I'm going to start off with, um, I'm going to go, you know, no particular order other than just kind of like the years they came out. So not saying like, you know, this first one's like the lowest or whatever. So um, Live at the Apollo, 1963, Mr. James Brown. It's absolutely wonderful. This album is absolutely one of those, 
when I talk about um, looking at an artist, a certain artist within his time frame, this guy at this performance is absolutely wonderful. So I kind of think of James Brown in the sense of just dancing on stage. You know, he's got the moves and he can sing, he can move and groove, and he's got some, you know, pretty good, pretty good jams. You know, when you listen to this, I think you get a really good introspective of a full James Brown concert. And you see, and you can hear, excuse me, how energetic it is and how musical it is, actually. Because he, he starts off on fire and then he'll kind of like malaise you a little bit with some nice, small, like smooth, like R&B. And then he'll get you up and jiving again, up and jiving. And you can feel mm. the the fervor in the crowd a little bit when it comes to that. Um, for me, uh, I got I, my friend Alex Monstock, who's probably like the third host of the show because I mention him a lot. Um, <laughs> but he told me about this album, and I was like, I was like James Brown. It's like you know, I like some of his music. I'm like, yeah, I'll give him a listen. You know, like I had no problem like giving it a shot. Sure. So I think so. He played me the album, and I heard it only once before, and it was fantastic. I was in love with it. So I was at. A vinyl show and I saw I thought I saw the same cover so when I picked it up um, I only paid like 12 bucks for it I brought it home I showed Alex the same the cover and we both had different covers but when I open up the disc you know mine said 62 on it and I'm like ah shit you know so I got like the earlier one I didn't get his but I'm like ah cool I'll just listen to it and when I listened to it it was fantastic well here I have an original copy it was actually recorded in 1962 you know, when it was recorded in that October, uh, when was it recorded? October 24th of 62. That's when it was recorded, but it was released in 63. So Alex had an older copy, like a, a newer version of it that said it was, you know, 63, but mine said 62. And it's the same hmm. same thing. So it is absolutely the one of the best James Brown vinyls. So it's like we both have it. Um, you know, you look it up, a lot of people are hit or miss on it, but it's 29 minutes of fantastic music in my book uh great window looking into them if i had to say anything um you know it starts off with i'll go crazy which is a fucking phenomenal way after he gets introduced and they come in rapid fire i'll go crazy is just one of these absolute wonderful jams And then you, you, just the way that he has that song, it's just him screaming, are you feeling all right? And then that band just kind of kicks on in. Just heavy bass, really good kind of, you know, just really good horn section that's in there. And then as soon as he sings, just boom, that crowd just goes absolutely nuts. What a wonderful kind of way to start the concert out. And like I said, then he goes to like Try Me, which is absolutely another beautiful slow dance romantic tune. You kind of hear James Brown's sincere vocals. Absolutely wonderful. There's a medley of songs that kind of like, for me, you flip the album over and it kind of cuts it off. Um, but it's just really this hyper energy just all throughout. It's like in and out, in and out, in and out, just like the whole album. It's just fantastic. And then Night Train ending um, is just absolutely wonderful. It's like R&B at one of its best. So Live at the Apollo, 1963, James Brown. 
if you haven't listened to it, I definitely recommend it. It is a, it's a classic one and 29 minutes feels like it's only like 10 minutes for me. Yeah. I'm surprised it's so short. I'm looking at the set list or just the track list on Spotify and three songs take up two thirds of the album. So the last three songs track nine, 10 and 11, 10 minutes, six minutes, three minutes, and everything else is one, two, two, 12 <laughs> seconds, 145, 13 seconds. Uh, I know. It's a great introspect of how the 60s concerts were. The Beatles were very yeah. much similar. The Stones were very much similar. I mean, um, they were, you know, by the time like the late 60s happened, you didn't, you got longer sets than this, or you would still have like 30 minutes, but you would have like four or five songs. You know, it'd be Grateful Dead-ish almost. Right. Yeah, that's like an opening band gets a half hour now. <laughs> yeah. And that might be the first opening band. The second one might get 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's just crazy. So I guess it's 31 minutes, but uh, great album. Uh, if you really want an inside look at James Brown on stage, I think this is one of the best representations I've ever seen, other than actually watching him dance on stage because that guy was the... I don't know who's a better dancer, Michael Jackson or him, but they are both like, you know, neck and neck. That's cool. James so. Brown is one I've never, I mean, I've listened to his stuff, obviously, but never fully have taken the deep dive, but this might be a good place to start. Oh, definitely. You'll, he has a couple of originals that he sings, or like some that were from his albums and stuff, and he's, he's into it, baby. This is a best representation of James Brown, I think. What's a... What's uh what's up your alley for the so, starting point? Neil Young had made your honorable mentions, but Neil Young was good enough to make my mm. list. So the first album I want to talk about is Rust Never Sleeps, and that's Neil Young and Crazy Horse from 1979. So this one was recorded in 1978 during the Rust Never Sleeps tour. Uh, I think I picked up this vinyl, I think probably at Cheapo. Uh, it was just one of those finds like, one of those times you go to the record store and you're just kind of browsing through. And I always looked for like older albums of artists I knew, or especially like live stuff. I love looking for live vinyl stuff because that to me, it's a good way to like get a really good sense of the artist. But like sometimes it's really hard to find some of those specific albums. But I think I did find um, Harvest in one of like the used bins. I think that was a pretty cool find. I was pretty excited about that when I found that one time. But anyway, I found this one just kind of browsing around, but it's a cool album. It's in the same Dylan style. So the first half is just is Neil Young on the acoustic guitar. And he starts the record by playing My My Hey Hey out of the blue, which has become a very famous song. It's it's a beautiful song of him playing, but this whole first half of the album it's an acoustic it's an acoustic set but it's it's kind of abrasive it's it's piercing yet beautiful it's not just a melodic singer songwriter there's an edge to it neil young's kind of always had a little bit of that edge to him especially because you know neil young is kind of punk rock without being punk rock kind of always anti-establishment carries a chip on his shoulder a little bit and that definitely you can hear that in a lot of his playing and I talked about him in our political songs or protest songs episode, which I can't think of the number off the top of my head. But that first half is awesome. My My Hey Hey is a gorgeous song. I love that one. And then the second half, uh, I should note, though, that 
there's a little caveat to this one because the songs Pocahontas and Sail Away are actually studio recordings that were put into this album. So it's not a full-on live version. So that's why it's going first because it, it breaks some of the rules. So fuck it. It gets to go here. But the what, second, you think you're Neil Young just breaking rules like that? I do what I want, Jesse. <laughs> it's taken you 51 episodes to figure it out, but I'm glad we got there. Uh, that second half, though, that's when Crazy Horse, the band, comes in is the backing band and this is where I really love the album it's aggressive it's in your face it's just got a real edge to it and an interesting part like for being a live album you don't hear a lot of the crowd and you talked about that earlier and part of liking Mm. live albums is hearing the crowd and it seems like they kind of removed some of that just a little bit you can hear some of it at the very very beginning of the album and then at the very end. Mm-hmm. But this song ends with My My Hey Hey again, but it's now the version with the band. And holy shit, is this version good. Like, the acoustic version is the more, more popular one. I mean, it's one of Neil Young's most popular songs of all time. But this live version with Crazy Horse in there, oh, just listen to that bass and that guitar it's so heavy like it feels like a thousand pounds when you just you can't even scoop it up off the ground that's how heavy this is and every time i play this album i forget about this song and then i'm instantly brought back in when i hear it because it's just that good yeah that fuzz is just amazing on that. mm. that's just like overdrive like on steroids yep and so this this is one of those live albums that I like to turn to you just kind of remember how it's done mm-hmm. oh, no that's a fucking great choice yeah Neil Young usually always has I think just a great musical uh, just a mind I think of like how mm-hmm. to do things and being able yep. to bookend those kind of songs that's absolutely wonderful and to do it in two different versions yeah is just great. it's very creative yeah I mean, to, how, how to think to do that reprise like that yeah. is kind of great. Right. And for uh, my second choice, Mr. Benjamin, we're going to go to Monterey Pop Festival back in 1967. Hey. So it's like, well, wait, what's going on? It's like, what are you talking about? Who did you got that's on a uh, Monterey Pop Festival? Well, it's a duo set. So we have Jimi Hendrix and Otis Redding live at Monterey Pop Festival from 19... It was released in 1970, recorded June 18th, 1967. Side one was Jimi Hendrix. That day, if you don't know the history of this... I don't. um, It's uh, kind of a weird one. I can't quite remember exactly, but basically it was going to be between Jimi Hendrix and The Who. They wanted to go first. I think somebody wanted to go first. Like That's how you set set the stage, and then it's like, oh, my God, I have to follow that. So they did a coin toss in the back, and The Who won, apparently, and quote-unquote Jimi lost. Yep. So the Who go and play, and they bash a couple instruments and stuff like that. And it's kind of cute and shit like that, you know? Um, so, you know, Jimmy was not quite the headliner. He was going to come on after the Who, and then before the Mamas and the Papas. <laughs> so Jimmy and the Who, knowing each other from England, they're like, okay. Jimmy's like, we'll, we'll, we'll play you. 
Um, one of the weird things about this album and this first side that I found interesting, you look at like the actual song list of what Jimi Hendrix and the Experience played that night. Uh, it goes uh, Killing Floor, Foxy Lady, Like a Rolling Stone, which is the first song that appears on the album. So they didn't play the first two. Like a Rolling Stone, Rock Me Baby, No Hey Joe, uh, Can You See Me was not there. The Wind Cries Mary, Purple Haze wasn't there, but Purple Haze was only partly filmed and recorded as as cameras and tape were being uh, changed during this uh, present, presentation. Well, the last song is Jimi Hendrix and the Experience uh, playing um, the Trogs, if I remember right, the Trogs, Wild Thing. Wild thing. Mm-hmm. Down, 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 down. Well, that song is killer for two reasons. One, Jimmy fucking kills that song on there. So and kills so, it. So does Mitch Mitchum. Um, and I, oh, I forget the, I forget the drummer now. All of a sudden, no, Mitch Mitchum was the drummer. Mitch, who's the Mitch bass Mitchell player? Mitch Mitchell is the drummer. Uh, I can't remember who the, who the bass player, but all three of them were kicking ass on that song. Yeah. But this song in itself is actually very. Um, famous for the song where he was breaking his guitar and he pushed it against the amp and he humped it and then after he humped the guitar and the amp he put it down on the ground and lit it on fire and all of a sudden he arrived isn't that beautiful so you actually get the recorded aspect of him on stage and you don't know what you're listening to it is it is like a cacophony of sound Yep. That is supposed to be rock music, but you don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden, you kind of hear gasps, and you hear something from the audience. It's absolutely wonderful. So it's away from the music itself, but you know, probably because they kind of kept out a lot of the other more famous songs. But they caught the one that made a difference in history because mm-hmm. everybody, when you watch the videotape, when he's doing that, it's... You know, you, you see a couple of things. You see the, the, the picture of mamas and papas kind of going, wow, when Janice was singing earlier in the day. And then you also get, you know, the people reacting to Jimi Hendrix, like, what the fuck is this guy doing, man? Uh-huh. And that's what the beauty of it was. And so that ends side one. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Don't you think you would kind of end side two with it? But they went with side one for Jimmy. you know? Yeah. So the second side begins with Mr. Otis Redding doing a kind of a cover song off of, um, well, actually, I should say, uh, June 18th was Jimi Hendrix recording. June 17th was Otis Redding. Um, And Otis Redding begins with Shake, which was by um, uh, Sam Cooke, who had, I think he just passed away earlier that year. So I think he was doing a cover song just kind of out of respect for him. Um, but one of my favorite highlights is, um, is him doing respect. He, when he introduces the song respect, he goes, I'm going to do another song. A young lady just stole this song from me. She, she totally stole this song and I'm, I'm going to bring it back tonight. I'm still going to do it tonight. And it's respect. And it's just a rapid fire, beautiful song done by Otis Redding. From that point on, you are just enamored by him and his stage present, just how it oozes out. And part of that reason is his backing band. Um, His backing band is Booker T and the MGs. They had played earlier. uh, I think they they were right before him, if I remember right. Let me pull up the list. Yep, they were just right before him. They played four or five songs there, four songs. 
and they 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 were a fantastic backing band that just gave they kind of gave the magic carpet ride for Otis to dance on while he was given this beautiful energy. He is just stealing the show. And if you look at that lineup throughout the day, he was the headliner. So it's kind of funny that we look at, you know, someone like Jimi Hendrix versus Otis Redding. You think that Jimi Hendrix, just based on um, hindsight, would be the lead, like, headliner out of this festival. But it was literally Otis Redding the night before, and, you know, Jimi Hendrix had to have a coin toss to get the, the second show. But you look at this lineup that day on um, June 17th, 1967. Moby Grape, love the band. Uh, Hugh uh, Maskella, don't know that one too well, but they do Here, There, and Everywhere, which is cover of the Beatles song. The Birds, phenomenal band. Uh, Laura Nairo, familiar with the last name. I'm not sure what that, but they also had Jefferson Airplane, Booker T and the MGs, and then Otis Redding. He took that whole show and everybody was just like completely enamored by him and you can hear it you can feel it in that record and his performance throughout those five songs is fantastic yeah this is really good stuff i also own this album and funny enough you're talking about the different covers for james brown james brown you'd sent me a picture you're like does this one count because of the two sides I was like, hey, I have that one, but the album cover that I have is different. So that was kind of cool. But yeah, this is a great album. I didn't put the two together earlier when you were like, do you know this story? But of course, it's iconic now with Hendrix busting up the guitar, bursting it on flames. That photo is one of a kind. And then that Otis side also is very, very good. Yeah, this is a this is a great live album, one that everyone should listen to, no doubt. Yeah, I think it has energy throughout the whole thing where... Again, like I said, the James Brown one goes by so fast that you kind of just don't realize it. This one does the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's over before you know it. Yeah. All right, Benji, what's up next on your list? Oh, let's see. So this with? one, we're going to take a trip all the way back to 2016. Yeah. And I'm talking Gary Clark Jr. live in North America, 2016. One you had offhandedly mm. mentioned in your honorable mentions, but... It made my list, so I'm going to talk about it in depth. This one was released in March of 2017 after it was recorded. uh, 12 tracks recorded across 2016, so it wasn't one live performance. This one was collected over the course of that tour. You can't really tell from listening. It it sounds like a a pretty thorough, straight-through concert, but it's just songs from wherever he played. Um, It made my top albums of the 2010s decade or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. Uh, this was just I one of my personal favorites from that decade. I think you can hear that in episode 25 when we do our year in review. We also talk about the decade in review a little bit there. One of my favorite tracks from this album is When My Train Pulls In. And this one is originally off of Black and Blue, which came out in 2012, a studio album. And it also is on his 2014 live album. So he's done a 2014 and a 2016 live album. So he played it on both albums, which is kind of interesting. But the solo in this one is just next level. It pierces, it screeches, it gets in your face. It makes you feel all tingly inside. So I listened um, back because I wanted to compare the 2014 one to this version 2014 live album it's played faster there's a little more sense of urgency like kind of feels like he has somewhere to be 
But this 2016 one, excuse me, I'm getting the whiskey burps again. <laughs> 2016 one is slower. It grinds more. There's more emotion to it. It feels like he's playing from another place. And I think he matured a lot, even in those couple of years. Slowed things down. And then I listened to the version from Black and Blue. And that one felt kind of weird. Because I really only think of when my train pulls in. I only think of the live version now. And that's very yeah. similar to there's a lot of songs where you only think of the live version. My My Hey Hey is a great example of that. Folsom Prison Blues, uh, Show Me the Way by Peter Frampton or Do You Feel, Rock and Roll All Night by Kiss, No Woman No Cry, Layla by Clapton. Like Those are all songs that are the live version, but that's what you think of when you think of those songs. You don't think of the studio version. I mean, there's not a studio version of some songs, but you don't think of the studio version and this is to me one of those same songs where it's like I don't think of the studio version when I listen to the song it's definitely this live version and then the album wraps up with the song Numb and this is also off Black and Blue 2014 and also on or off of Black and Blue and on the 2014 live album but this one is also just so good it's there's so much fuzz it's fuzztastic powerful raw there's grit just so much emotion put into it and it, it's a lot heavier than the 2014 version and the album version not quite as much because i think the studio version of this song is still very good so i don't think numb live replaces that quite yet for me but also a sensational solo a lot of use of the octave pedal, a lot of fuzz going on there. Just a all-around good song, but this album from front to back is so good. Leon Bridges makes a guest appearance on here, but man, like this is quintessential Gary Clark Jr. Oh yeah, this is what we know him as. You know, For sure. A few times, and his live shows are so fantastic. They're very powerful. They're Amazing! I love I love how he walks on stage with it. He's got the hat on. It's got the smoke on with the lights, and he's just kind of like just kind of teasing with that guitar just a little bit, like popped in. This is a very good representation. Like I said, this would have been my honorable mentions for sure. I, I I'm in love with this. I agree with you. It's one of the best albums of the 2010s for sure. Yeah. I can't believe we got to see him at First Avenue. Yeah, I know. You know, well, like. Just to see him in that size of a venue with, what, 1,500 people or so, just unbelievable because he could be playing. I mean, the Armory wasn't around at the time, but, you know, now he'd be for sure playing at the Armory, which is, what, six to 8,000 people? Yeah, I think, yeah. 8, Something 000, like that, 8,000. Yeah. You know, I think that would be more of his territory, especially now. But, man, this to see him in that venue and just to get to watch him do his guitar magic. Oh, I, know, I, I can see you. I can, I can see you gushing right now. I still Skype, have right there. You're rubbing your beard. Like you're, yeah, you're having some, you're having some, we're going to we're gonna have to take a break here. here. <laughs> I got to go get the mop. Yeah. I, I already got a text in the staff to come on in with the mop. Uh, get. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's on standby. <laughs> Clean up an <laughs> yeah. aisle under the chair. She goes, well, I, I wanted to fool around tonight. I, I just got out of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but man, this is, 
so 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 good can't sing enough praises about it no exactly everybody this, this is listen, great just one. listen to it do yourself a favor do yourself a favor not me not gary you do you listen to this and, and especially if people people are into red uh, red's like one of the more popular colors man this is a sexy little red album actually to have in your collection oh yeah it's, it, it's nice man it's a beautiful uh, album to have no doubt all right so now right, that um, yeah, why if, don't you if, take over for a minute? I'm gonna yeah, turn on the fan. Take a and, nap. Now yeah, I'm gonna cool down. Yeah, you're gonna go for a ham sandwich, aren't you? I'll Jeez. give you a ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can call this the turning point of the whole episode. But, oh, something's turning. Oh, I bet. And uh, it, it, it's going to be this next album. This one is uh, a kind of a classic. Uh, this one would be kind of a, one of those rare ones that we would bring up. Um, this one was introduced to me by a friend of mine, Mike Marine. And the reason it was introduced to me, um, not only is it a favorite of his, but uh, it was actually in his vinyl collection that he was given to me. So um, this is John Mayles, The Turning Point from 1969. And so... This album is kind of a big deal for me for like a live album is because when I first listened to it, I, I knew it was a live album, but it was like something completely different than I'd ever heard before. Um, kind of, it broke the rules of like what a, when you know the name John Mayle, he's actually from, uh, he's the main guy in the Blues Breakers who uh, introduced Eric Clapton to the world, Peter Green to the world, Mick Taylor and uh, J- uh, Jeff Beck as well. So they all played within the Blues Breakers together, and not together, but you know, with John Mayle. So John Mayle has this huge rock blues kind of um, background. What he wanted to do after he kind of disbanded the uh, Blues Breakers by allowing Mick Taylor to leave his band, the Blues Breakers, to join the Rolling Stones against Mick Jagger's wishes, um, he was like, you know what? I just want to have like a low kind of not like heavy electric kind of a live set. I kind of want to do something not along, along, along the lines of folk music, but just something laid back and, you know, still very powerfully musical. So he got together with four different artists or four different other artists that he pulled in. And it was... uh John Mark and John Almond, um, who are kind of like kind of jazz musician players. And then he also worked with Stephen Thompson, who was the bass player. And then, of course, um, John Mayle would play, you know, guitar, harmonica, um, the triangle, whatever, whatever instrument he can get his hands on. He'll play it while he's singing and everything. Um, did you get a chance to listen to this by chance? I sure did. Yeah. So I, my one question I wanted to ask to you. Yep. Did you notice that there was no drums in this? Well, now that you mention it, sure, but not at the time. Yeah, it did, you, huh. like, you didn't you didn't even think about it, did no, you? No, and and it doesn't. And so this has like no drums, no piercing guitar work. You know, it's it's not the rock norm. And they were, you know, John Mayles big enough at that time to go on tour and stuff like that. So, so they recorded this July twelfth, nineteen sixty nine. He broke up with the the Blues Breakers in May of 69. So he only had four weeks to get together and play at the Fillmore East where this was recorded. He only had four weeks to work with three new musicians on nine new songs and only seven made the the thing, the the album. 
Isn't that amazing? Kind of work to actually be pulling that off. And what you heard is pretty fucking amazing. It's wild. So my friend Mike Marine, the reason why he gave me this album other than in his collection, he goes, I think you'll like this one song called California. 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 What the hell is that? It's the California song. Now, this song, though, listen to that driving melodic kind of manic bass line. It's just so fantastic. I think we've discussed this song before. Maybe I may have brought it up there. I can't remember where I have, but I just love this song so much. It's just so fucking wonderful. Very uh, haunting kind of, you know, harmonica and guitar during the solo. But before that, you get the excellent sax solo. John Almond uh, is a very excellent sax uh, saxophone player, tenor or bass sax. He's like fucking killing it. You also hear kind of uh, John Mayle's voice. It sounds like kind of like he's drowning in another world and he's just aching to reach California. Like it's some sort of like fountain of youth or something. So all around this performance of this song is extremely tight and they only have four weeks to perform this and it is a nine minute and 40 second like just masterpiece just drawn out. It's just so fucking wonderful. That song is just wonderful. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, when I was listening to this one, god damn that saxophone. Ooh, it's like smoky lounge, dark smoky, speakeasy lounge. Like it uh, reminds me. Did you? What's the um, Volstads? You ever go to Volstads? Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. They would always have like it's a speakeasy, so it's kind of got like a hidden entrance and everything. And they had a jazz like trio down there, and kind of reminded me of the same vibe. Just oh, kind of that, yeah, like. It feels like it's a secret. It's dark. It's smoky. Yeah, this was that place. Yeah, it feels just like a, a just a lost off place. It's just such a wonderful song. Everybody listen to California. I mean, listen to the whole album, but California when it pops up is phenomenal. Uh, two other songs that I'll kind of kind of like just kind of glean upon is the laws must change. It is a great political statement. It's got this bluesy touch to it and it has just a little bit of uh, you know like, kind of like a couple droplets of like jazz in it and it's kind of got this beautiful political statement wonderful kind of a song that uh, John Mayo was trying to push at the time because obviously the tensions were very high from uh, the Vietnam era but it starts off the whole album it just is a great little piece and that's the cool thing about John Mayo's kind of whole uh, discography is that he has this beautiful blues feeling almost in every song and you kind of just get taken you know like a ride it's a different boat each song Mm -hmm. you know it's just wonderful Mm -hmm. um the the end song is just a great blues performance um and it has like this awesome little piece in it where where i just told you we they didn't have any drums in it but they um i think it's i think it's john mark and uh uh, male that actually do the mouth rhythms of you know pop And they do it like in sync, like perfect together with it. And it's just so fantastic. So this song is just a wonderful kind of a scat blues folk style song in its prime. I This is just so fucking good. Is this Dave Grohl on the cover here? 
No, I know it doesn't look like it. Yeah, yeah it I couldn't does. find the actual. I couldn't find the actual link to the to the one that's on the album, but this is the live version from it. But yeah, it looks like Dave Grohl, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just so cool, and it's like something you don't hear. And for a live album, you know, kind of like you and I've always talked. We're we're power, and we love being like kicked around a little bit on stage. Mm-hmm. This is just a different like delivery and the way that they execute it is absolutely wonderful yeah and uh if you like that kind of jazzy feel from it if you listen so one of the best things also out of this album um came the creation of mark allman band so you know john mark and john allman i talked about um allman was the saxophone player that played that wonderful sax solo they tra- they created a kind of a, a more jazzy folk version of like the moody blues and what you hear here they do t- tap in a little bit of blues a little bit of rock but it's more jazz folk and they've mm-hmm. had some good work too and that's my friend mike marine who introduced me to this album also introduced me to mark almond as well and if i can say anything if you like this album after giving it a listen definitely give a little bit of mark almond a listen it may not be it for everybody but for that jazz folky version that you kind of hear in this that's kind of like their touch to it and it's absolutely wonderful work nice all right, Benny. Any last words on that, or before you go to yours, or do you gonna go to the pen, the ultimate? Yeah, album? we're gonna go right into it. Let's do it. So this one definitely makes my top albums of all time list in general, but it also makes my top live albums list. And this is, and I've talked about him before. You know who it is, Jack That's White. Right. Yep, it's, Jack White. Uh, it's John Mayer. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Jack White 2014 at Bonnaroo is fantastic, though. That's not a live oh, album, yeah. but it should be. It should be. That would be sweet. I was in all the right moods for that one. That'd be anyway, a four-disc set, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was like a two-hour show. <laughs> kind of was falling asleep towards the end. Just a combination of <laughs> all day drinking and is that smoking, what falling asleep smoking the weed. <laughs> but it was it was good. That's not anyway. falling asleep. That's not falling asleep, folks. <laughs> I, I was aware of what I was doing. <laughs> oh, you needed I was aware to be... I was passing out. <laughs> no, I was like legitimately falling asleep. It was also midnight by this point. Whatever. I don't know. I need to defend myself to you. <laughs> uh, you are going to think what you want to think anyway. I already Can did. I go now or are we just... Oh, no. Show me where the light is. Okay. (laughs) So this album that we're going to talk about to you now is Where the Light Is by John Mayer, recorded or released in 2008. It was recorded at the Nokia Theater in Los Angeles, California, December 8th, 2007. And it was also released as a DVD in the DVD has all the songs from the album but it also has like cutscene footage so in between some of the songs or some of the sets they do backstage shots or whatever kind of it's it's pretty cool it's worth a watch but i think every song from that dvd is also on youtube so you can see just about anything um but this in my opinion is is his masterpiece so far in his career mm-hmm. better than any of his studio stuff and he's got a bunch of other live albums out there but this one is like their premiere one and it's split up into three sections so it starts off there's an acoustic set he comes out he plays five songs and he plays his kind of complex unique finger style playing i think is is really good um tommy emmanuel if you're listening i think if there's anyone that should be 
a certified guitar player. Uh, if it's not going to be me, it should be John Mayer. <laughs> so I would just nominate him to become a official CGP. Um, if you don't know what that is, look up Tommy Emanuel because he is one of a few CGPs, according to Chet Atkins. But anyway, we'll keep moving on. Um, in that acoustic set, he played uh, his hit songs. He played Daughters and Neon, um, but he also did a Tom Petty cover and he played Free Fallen, which is like the most popular song yeah. off of this album. Um, it's good. I don't think it's my favorite, but I think because it's John Mayer, it's mixing the pop aspect of John Mayer with the notoriety of Tom Petty in this song. And I think that's why it's become so popular. So if people have heard a song from this album, it's probably this one, but it's, I think Tom Petty was actually a fan of that version. If I remember reading somewhere, so I think, I think, I think that would have touched his fan base as well. Yeah. But come along children. There's better, there's better stuff on this album. Um, after the acoustic set, it gets into the blue tr- blues trio set. So yes. that's the John Mayer blues trio with John Mayer, Steve Jordan on the drums, and Pino Palladino on the bass. Those two guys are amazing at what they do. Uh, this is by far, I this is my favorite section of the whole album. It's so good. Um, one of my favorite songs that he plays on here is called, it's Wait Until Tomorrow. This is actually a Jimi Hendrix song. The solo on here is one of my favorite guitar solos ever. this thing it's so pure it's so emotional but it shreds yeah we're, I can't even describe it in words you just have to listen to this on your own but just watch his fingers he's not he's going up and down he's going left to right I mean he's all over the place in this thing it's quite amazing and Pino Palladino on the bass is just locked in you can see him just staring at John just he's locked in there and then when they cut to Steve Jordan on the drums he's just jamming out doing his thing it's amazing. Definitely watch watch the DVD if you can get a hold of it. I'm sure there's versions on the internet you can watch. Otherwise, just watch the clips on YouTube because it takes this to a whole nother level to watch him do this. Um, he also did another Hendrix song on this in this section, and that was Bold as Love. And that was actually the first song that I had heard from this album. And that's what got me into this was hearing that Bold as Love's cover. And he does a pretty good solo on that one as well. Not quite as good as this one, but still pretty good. And then another song from this that I think is worth talking about listening to is a song called Out of My Mind. And this one is a slow blues jam that goes on for a nice short 10 minutes. And it's a lot of just slow blues. John kicks into the solo about halfway through. And it's just gorgeous. Because he does some shredding, but it's not a lot of shredding. It's just slow and prodding and trotting. But it's worth every minute to go back and listen to that one. Fantastic song off, off that section. And then the last section, he kind of busts out the John Mayer band plays the John Mayer hits, and that's another nine songs. So he plays some hits, including Waiting on the World to Change, Slow Dancing in a Burning Room, and Why Georgia. And he also does some covers on this one, too. So he covers Don't Need No Doctor by Ray Charles. He did that with John Schofield. And then he does Otis Redding 
I've Got Dreams to Remember. So we've had a lot of crossover on our albums here. There's a lot of yeah. Otis Redding crossovers, some covers, Neil Young, Gary Clark. Like we have a lot of incestual mixture here yeah, going on. Cool. Yeah, I, it is pretty I, cool. I was not expecting that at all, you know, for yeah. kind of a nice little crossover and like different stories and shit that goes through. Right. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Mayor being, he's a huge Hendrix fan, obviously. Um, Stevie Ray Vaughan. I mean, you can hear those guys in his soloing quite a bit, but I mean, he's, he's also a student of the game. So he's all about all different types of music and musicians. And you can hear that in his playing, but this album, this is like the album. So there's a quote, um, there's a live video of like John Mayer and BB King on stage and they're, they're talking and they're jamming and stuff. And, John says to B.B. King and he's like, um, he was talking about one of B.B. King's live albums and it might have been Royal Albert Hall. I can't remember the name of the album or which album it was, but he says to B.B. King, he's like, I listen to this album before I go out and play because it reminds me like how to do it. It reminds me of what it's all about. But this this one where the light is for me. Like, this is that album for me. Like, this is the album that I go to when I want to remember, like, this is how, this is how you do it. So, like, Mm -hmm. this is my go-to, like, when I need to just kind of, you know, when you kind of feel down or whatever, it's like, I'm not feeling good about my playing or like, I feel like I haven't been doing stuff. This is the album I go to, to, to turn things around. No way. That's awesome. Mine's a, mine's a Boy George's first solo album. Hmm. Yeah, I don't even know what it is. I just sit there and I cry. That's a good one. I was going to yeah. say something by like Nick Lachey personally for me, but that's you know my me, number I, two. I still go to All for One. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, I do love uh, speaking to, to kind of close out our albums uh, talk here. Um, I do really love that. Uh, John John Mayer is where the light is. You gave that to me so I could borrow it for a little while. I threw that puppy on, especially the Blues Trio side, like multiple times. That one got oh, more yeah. wear and tear from me for sure. But just listening to that whole album is just amazing, especially those acoustic side. Um, that's where you really, I think, for me, when you judge a, a, a guitar player, if they can do what they do acoustically what they could do electronically you are in the greatest realm right there so someone showing you what their chops are like on the acoustic is fantastic and it's not just shredding but it's also learning about finger picking it's about strumming the right the right uh, strings at the right time and just finding them uh he's fantastic at it and definitely uh he's 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 Thank you for uh, kind of showing me who he is because uh, uh, I got more insight from knowing more about his blue side mm-hmm. um, from you. And that really opened the door because I kind of always knew he was okay at the acoustic. But then yep. when you see and you hear this, yep. he's fantastic. Yep. Yeah. So I got a lot of cleanup to do. What'd you do? Well, I mean, just the last two albums I've talked about. Oh, geez. Oh, so yeah. I've, I've got to clean up quite a bit so i probably gotta get going uh you think so you think the neat well i guess your needle is already dropped needle's um, dry so we'll we'll have to lift the needle uh back up and uh we will uh lift the needle off of this episode and we will see you folks in a week here and uh benji good luck with all that down there my pleasure <laughs> yes it definitely was only your pleasure that's it for us today folks thank you for listening 
If you would now, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review and include an album you want us to review. When we hit 10 new reviews, we'll go through those reviews. We'll pick one of those albums that's in there. And then Jesse and I will review it on an upcoming episode. You don't have to listen on Apple Podcasts to leave us a review there. That's where we just want the reviews right now. Goodbye.